Alright, today I'm going to continue my wisdom series. Uh, earlier in the year, I did a sermon series on wisdom with time. And right now, I'm in the middle of a wisdom sermon series on wisdom and relationships. Relational wisdom is what we're talking about. And so today, I'm going to continue that. But before I get started on that, I want to just encourage all those people that are doing the 21-day intercession uh, from all of our campuses that are doing that. I just want to really encourage you and tell you that your prayers are powerful and effective. Uh, you're already shifting things in the atmosphere. Uh, Aaron and I have been able to get healthy. Uh, myself, even though uh, the antibiotics looked like they weren't working, when you guys started to pray on Monday, I started to get immediately better. Uh, my wife also got a lot better, even though she had no antibiotics that she took. Uh, she has gotten a lot better, and I believe it is through your prayers. And also through your prayers, uh, the wisdom that was dropped, the revy that dropped heavy at Willy Hilly, uh, that that revelation is sinking deep as the intercessors are praying for the house. And so I want to encourage all those who have started the 21-day intercession uh, you're seven days through. I want you to uh, finish these next two weeks strong. And uh, for all, all, the majority of the people in the house at all of our campuses, they actually stood up to make that commitment to re-listen to the retreat sermons, at least three retreat sermons, to outline it, and then to meditate on it. So a vast majority of ET1 stood up. The vast majority of Sydney and Seaside also stood up to make this commitment. And so I want to encourage all those people that are right now re-listening and outlining and meditating on these sermons. Do not let the devil steal away the wisdom of God from your heart and from this house. And don't settle for vomit or diarrhea. Right? With the food poisoning attacks on various people, even our intern pastor Anna Rowe had to go to the hospital the other day. Uh, she also got the same exact symptoms and she had to get an IV. Um, but these attacks are physical prophetic attack. It's a symbol of what the devil is trying to do in the spirit realm. He's trying to take all this wisdom, revelation that was released at the retreat, and he's trying to steal it. Because what is vomit and diarrhea? It's just unprocessed food. Satan wants to take it away while it's still unprocessed. And as the church, I want to encourage you guys to continue to digest and ingest everything that God has revealed. Think through how we can apply the wisdoms and how we can apply it to building up the house and the movement that we're a part of. I believe uh, Pastor Daniel said this, when God hides something, he doesn't hide it from you, but for you. He hides it so that when you discover it, you treasure it much more than if... It was just obviously handed to you. And he hides it where we can easily find it, but it must be sought with eyes of faith. That's powerful revelation just right there. Today, I'm going to continue this uh, wisdom series on relational wisdom. My first message was called Imminent and Economic Trinity. And it covered wisdom in our relationship with church leaders. If you didn't get that message, I really recommend you go and download it. My second message was wisdom with parents. And that message is called honor your father and mother. 
My third message should be called, Where is my water? <laughs> I'm not getting a cup of water up here. I need a cup of water. Come on, Daniel. And Daniel, if you see a fly this time, you better be ready to kill that fly. I'm sorry. So I, I got two relational wisdom messages out. Today's message deals with wisdom in our relationship with the unchurched. With unbelievers, people who do not believe yet in Christ. People who have not made a faith-based commitment to follow Him. As Christians, we desperately need wisdom in this area. Because if you've been in a Christian bubble long enough, you will find it difficult to relate to the unchurched. You will either come off condescending or you may come off stiff and paranoid. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It ain't good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled by men. As Christians, we got to always stay salty. We got to stay salty to the world around us. And there are two main reasons why we must have wisdom in how we relate to the unchurched. The first is obvious. For the sake of evangelism. And the second is for the purpose of providing godly leadership in secular settings. You're not, we're not going to bring everyone that we meet to Christ. But God may still call you to provide leadership in that setting. And to provide a godly leadership. So these are two main reasons why we need wisdom in how we relate to the unchurched. You know, there are three basic responses that a lot of Christians make toward the world and toward the unchurched. One is uh, cocooning. This is found in a, a book called Culturally Savvy Christian. You can go check it out if you like. Too many Christians, they cocoon themselves away from the world out of a fear of being contaminated by the immorality of the world. An extreme example of cocooning are the Amish in Pennsylvania. Anyone know about the Amish in Pennsylvania? You know, I used to live in uh, Philly and nearby a couple hours. Hey, Dan Daniel, take care of this. I'm serious. Everyone ignore Daniel as he tries to kill this fly, okay? <laughs> Daniel, get a little big whacker and kill it. No, that's not going to do it. That's, not, that's for mosquitoes. That's not for flies. Get like a uh, calendar, roll it up, and kill it. Or just give me that calendar. I'll kill it myself. The Amish in Pennsylvania, where were we? An extreme example of cocooning. Dr. Kirby talked about at the retreat how at one point in American church history, pastors warned their congregations to stay away from professions in entertainment, in government, in sports, and how this kind of preaching caused us to lose our saltiness and our ability to influence culture. And we, pre we treated these types of professions like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
But we have to remember that God is not only the God of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he is also the God of Nineveh. He is the God who redeems. He is the God of Joseph and the God of Daniel, whom both God raised up to become government officials in pagan nations. Most churches uh, are not fishers of men. They are keepers of the aquarium. It's a little quote by Paul Little. Cocooning is obviously not a healthy response toward the unchurched and to the world. So some Christians, rather than cocoon, they combat everything in the world out of judgment and anger. They continually have this us and them, us versus them mentality. Anyone who doesn't agree with their views are immediately seen as the enemy. There are Christian politicians that are very good at combating. Unfortunately, their approach is also uh, does not represent Christ very well. It makes Christ seem very paranoid, very anxious. But how many of you guys know our God is not anxious? He sits in heaven on his throne and he cackles, he laughs, he scoffs at what the wicked do, thinking that they will prosper in their ways. God does all that he pleases. His sovereign will prospers in his hand. And still other Christians, if not cocooning or combating, they just conform. In the name of being relevant, they conform. They make compromises in the name of evangelism when it's really out of their own sensuality. Instead of transforming the world around them, they become very worldly and very much like the world around them. Cocooning, combating, conforming, these are not the proper responses that we ought to have toward the world and toward the unchurched. Today, I'd like to paint a more biblical, balanced, and wisdom-filled picture of how we ought to relate to the world. I mentioned earlier that there are two main reasons why we need wisdom in relating to the unchurched. First is evangelism, and second is leadership. My message today will focus on evangelism. Not that it's more important, but we got to start somewhere. Evangelism, relational with wisdom with the unchurched for the sake of sharing the gospel with them to bring them into a committed relationship to Christ. Now, some churches and ministries think that the main problem with evangelism is that Christians don't do it enough. They think if only Christians would overcome their fear of man, step out and share their faith more, more people would become Christians. Or they think if more college students will pray more and will step out onto the university campus to evangelize more, the entire campus would experience revival. Or they think if I can only get over my fear and share the gospel with my family members, they would all become Christians. They think the main problem with evangelism is a lack of activity, is that Christians don't do it enough. But I have found over the years that this is not the main problem. In fact, when Christians evangelize a lot, it can actually hinder people from coming to Christ. In my observations, I found that the main problem with, with evangelism is that we're not, it's not that we're not doing it enough. It's that we lack the wisdom in how to do it well. 
and how to do it in an intelligent, loving, edifying manner. In a way that is true to the integrity of the gospel message, that does not remove the offense of the cross, that presents the whole counsel of God's word, the whole counsel of the gospel message, and yet does it in a relevant, contextualized, meaningful way. A way that does not unnecessarily alienate the unchurched. We lack wisdom in how to do evangelism well. Now, I feel I am somewhat qualified to teach on this subject because I've evangelized a whole lot in my life. In fact, I would estimate that I have evangelized more than you have your, your entire lifetime. In fact, this whole side of the half of the room right here, I probably evangelized more than all of you put together. That's a bold statement to make. I think statistically it will come out coming close to very true. Uh, that's because I've done a lot of evangelism in my life. And there are four basic methods where I was obsessed with, that I became entrenched with for a season. And I would like to describe those four basic methods. Number one, when I was a college student at New York University, I got approached by an Italian-American pastor named Brother Michael. He was my college mentor. You guys heard a lot about him. One thing with Brother Michael is he has the gift of prophecy. I didn't know what the gift of prophecy was when I was a college student. But when I met him, I knew clearly what it looked like. He would be able to pray over me and prophesy very accurate things about the secrets of my heart that I hadn't told anyone. A lot of times it would, it would cause me to cry. And so I knew that this gift was real and I knew that God was still using it. The Holy Spirit was still using it. Well, after being impressed by his gift of prophecy, he challenged me. And Brother Michael said, Brother Christian, if you love Jesus, I want you to come out onto the streets as I do open air preaching. Okay, how many of you here, you have ever been involved in open air preaching? Raise your hand. Open air preaching. Okay, how many of you guys consistently did open air preaching? Okay, I didn't think so. All right, two, three people. All right. Uh, during my sophomore year in college, I went out every single Saturday on 32nd Street of Manhattan with a little makeshift PA system and uh, some leaders from Times Square Church and some local churches. And Brother Michael was the main speaker. And I would bring out my um, hoopty electric guitar. It was, this, uh, it was this really cheap one. And uh, I would lead worship and sing songs onto the streets of 32nd Street, uh, onto, onto 32nd Street. And then Brother Michael will grab the mic and he'll preach the gospel. Let me tell you, it was difficult, especially in New York City. In fact, one time I was, um, I was leading worship. And when I lead worship, Brother Michael would say, keep playing, brother. Keep worshiping the Lord. The anointing is, is here. I just feel the anointing every time you lead that. We just strum that guitar. Hallelujah. Just keep leading worship. And so I was like kind of the opening act. But the trouble is the anointing will come, but the people wouldn't. But I still faithfully played my guitar and sang. 
I remember one time some random like black dude came up and he's like, yo, yo, you love Jesus? Yo, let me get on that guitar. And I was like, oh, I guess I got nothing to lose here. Or you can play, play a song. He grabbed the guitar and he started singing, um, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. He just kept singing that, right? And uh, Brother Michael wasn't really feeling it. Neither was I. But he was feeling it. So he was just, he was like in a trance. He just, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. And then this, this uh, big white dude was passing by. And he's like, hey, I got something. I got something to say. Can I say into the mic? And we're like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. You got a testimony, brother? Go ahead. He goes into the mic and he says, you guys suck. <laughs> and, that, and that was not entirely inaccurate. That guy, that guy sucked and I wasn't that much better. There are a lot of different stories from our open-air preaching on Saturdays. Uh, Much of it involved a lot of persecution. I remember one lady from a nearby office in in 32nd Street. She came down piping angry. I mean, her face was red. Uh, This white lady just really angry. And she came and she started punching our um, our our um, team, right? Our team members that were out there handing out tracks. She started, started punching people and yelling and then she tried to come up and grab my guitar. Like, Don't touch my guitar, lady. <laughs> and she tried to like, and she got on the mic as well and it's like, can you guys stop every single Saturday? I can't concentrate because you guys are singing these songs and preaching. Just shut up. Stop doing it. And she was just so angry. Good job, good job. You're doing a good job, Daniel. Daniel faithfully killing that fly. Uh, anyway, despite these persecutions, you know, we, we found comfort in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. When people say all kinds of false evil against you because of me. For the same way they treated the prophets, you know, and, and we found comfort in that. Besides just the persecution, there were also stories, testimonies of people coming to Christ. Brother Michael had a sharp prophetic gift. I remember one time there was a, a young black man, African-American guy with a brown bag of alcohol. And he was just drinking and he was just watching. And then pre- Brother Michael was preaching and then he stopped preaching, put the mic down, went straight up to him and said, Young man, you just left your wife and family last night. And the devil wants to try to break up your marriage, but I'm here to tell you God wants to restore it. Do you know Jesus? And the guy just went, how'd you know that? It's like, because God knows and God's telling me, do you know Jesus? And the guy said, I don't, but tell me, tell me about him. And we led him to Christ right there. And the first thing he did when we, we said amen was he threw the bottle into the trash can and said, I don't need that no more. I'm going back to my wife and kids. It's powerful, right? We saw testimonies like that, as many persecutions as we saw. Uh, But the open-air preaching uh, was difficult to sustain because uh, there was so much spiritual attack, uh, so much persecution. uh, And then there was division that broke out within the team. And so through that division, uh, Brother Michael decided uh, to kind of put it on hold for a while. And he tried to restart it a few times, but it really never got going again. 
And so I had this season where I got this open-air preaching, and I realized that all, not all open-air preaching is created equal. I know that there are people in Myeongdong that hold up signs saying everyone goes to hell. I know that people go through the New York City subway saying you will all go to hell. Uh, there are people like that. Be careful whether how you see them. Because some of them may be just zealous without knowledge, but others may actually be ordained by God to give prophetic warnings to this generation. And you've got to be discerning. Not all of them are created equal. And some of them are more effective than others, open-air preachers. But open-air preaching is a tradition rich in bringing people to Christ. In fact, John Wesley, George Whitfield, at a time where the pulpit was the only place where preaching took place, George Whitfield went out onto the fields and he preached to the peasants, the farmers, and brought multitudes to Christ. Open-air preaching has its place, and we have to be careful not to judge it. Uh, after open-air preaching, I, uh, around the, simultaneously around that same time, I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. And for a very long season of my life, I learned how to share the gospel by reading a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. It was like evangelism for dummies. You didn't have to do a single thing except learn how to read. If you knew how to read, you would be able to share the gospel. And we, the Campus Crusade staff would train you in how to evangelize using this booklet. And the front of the page, front cover says, have you heard of the four spiritual laws? And so all you do is read the cover. Have you heard of the four spiritual laws? And most people say, what is that? So, well, let me tell you. And you open the booklet and you start reading. Law number one, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. People, people, you know, you would think people would be like, wow, that's awesome. I've never heard that before. But most people would be like, um, uh, how long is it going to take? <laughs> oh, this is a long one. There's just three more. Just stick with me. Stick with me. You know, you know, law number two, you know, man is sinful and separated from God. You know, and then law number three, you know, uh, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. And law, law number four, you got to make a personal decision and follow Christ. And then we have this little diagram, and you, you learn how to explain the diagram. Uh, I use the four spiritual laws everywhere. As a student on my New York University campus, I would evangelize to fellow students. I would evangelize to the drug dealers in Washington Square Park. I was bold. I just went up to people, and I would evangelize all the time. Uh, when I went on mission trips, I evangelized in Kazakhstan, uh, in Astana, this capital city, to the elite college students. I would share the gospel um, some of them received Christ. There was one, one young man named Iliad who received Christ, and he continued to follow Christ afterwards. But many other people that received Christ, you know, it was very hard to find whether they were continuing to follow Christ afterward. I, I shared a gospel in China with the elite college students in Beijing. I shared the, the four spiritual laws in Panama City, Florida, Panama City Beach during spring break week. Campus Crusade had a very bold conference called Big Break. They would gather Christians from all their popular Bible Belt Christian colleges. And about 1,000 to 2,000 students would gather. And they would have a Christian evangelism conference while in the middle of all of that spring break madness. All right? And so if you can think of uh, spring break in all of its debauchery, like when you go to Panama, Panama City Beach, that's exactly what it is. You go there. And, you know, like there's girls in bikinis everywhere just dancing, just dancing with everybody, dancing with anything. And guys are just drinking and 
And guzzling beer everywhere, you know, there's obviously drugs inside some of these hotels. And, you know, Holiday Inn puts up with a lot of foolishness. They just put it because, you know, they, book, the hotels get completely booked out at high, really high premiums. These kids are just throwing away money, debauchery. It's just like the one week where people don't know you. And, and you know, and our students will go and we be praising God. And then we get, we get trained in how to read the booklet. And then we will be released to evangelize. So from lunchtime until evening, from like 1 o'clock till 6 o'clock, you have five hours to evangelize. So we will go out onto the beach, and we'll be like, hey, um, do you have five minutes? And the great thing about spring break is their answer is always, you know, I got like five hours, man. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> I want to talk to you about Jesus. And they're so drunk, they're like, Okay. You're like, can I read this little booklet to you? It's like, ah, sure. Hey, that's a cool diagram. <laughs> you want some beer? <laughs> you know, um, a lot of funny stories. But in the midst of all those funny stories, people, would, college students would actually receive Christ. I don't know how many of them were true, genuine conversions, but there were a few. Because some of them would actually come to the conference and testify. And they would say, I came to spring break feeling very alone. I just broke up with my boyfriend. I just broke up with my girlfriend. And I was just about to commit suicide. I, I was just totally at the, in depression. And then this young man, he met me uh, in the hotel room. He met me at the club. We were actually sent students to the club. But you have to be like uh, over 21. And, uh, and I met them. And then they shared the four spiritual laws with me. And then I received Christ. And everyone would cheer, you know. Uh, I also had... Full-time campus crusade training called GCTC, Great Commission Training Center. I did four months of it in California. And the main campus that they assigned me was UC Irvine. I know UC Irvine like the back of my hand. Because every Tuesday and Thursday, I would go to UC Irvine, and I will go out onto the campus, and I would evangelize. And the can- uh, my training directors will say, do not come back until you have completed 150 presentations of the gospel within three months, just twice a week. Let me tell you, that was a burden. That was a difficult burden to carry. Now, the thing about UC Irvine is a lot of the California kids are chill as well. So you say, can I share this booklet with you? And they'll be like, okay. Would you like to receive Christ? They'll be like, okay. And so, so many UC Irvine kids, they pray to receive Christ, but very rarely did they follow up. Did they show up to a follow-up Bible study, which showed me that they were just being Southern Californians. They were just being courteous and nice, not necessarily making a life-changing commitment for the gospel. Uh, I also evangelized at Columbia University when I was there for two years of my ministry assignment. Uh, I had many years, many instances. I also led many people to Christ. Some of those results I questioned because when I've tried to follow up with people, it didn't look like they made a commitment for Christ. After this living in this kind of ecosystem of reading a booklet, you know, and other ministries do the same thing. There's the Roman road, you know, I think navigators in varsity, they all have their own kind of booklet system because it's very simple. It's convenient. But after living in this kind of ecosystem, I got a little jaded. I got a little disillusioned if I had to be honest. And I started to go with and I discovered a new approach toward evangelism. 
It wasn't really a new one. It was just an old one that had been recovered. It was being taught by a gentleman named Ray Comfort. He was a New Zealander, a Kiwi, that had moved to California, partnered with an old-time celebrity from our childhood, childhood sitcom celebrity named Kirk Cameron. And Kirk Cameron became a Christian, and he started to fund and help Ray Comfort advertise and promote this new way of evangelizing. And it's called Way of the Master. And to summarize the Way of the Master approach, it is using the Ten Commandments to bring conviction of sin before you share with them the good news of the gospel. In fact, old reformers used to, used to teach, preach 90% law, 10% grace. If you look at your Bible... It's very similarly laid out. You have 80% Old Testament, 20% New Testament. So much bad news before you get the good news. (laughs) And so Ray Comfort's approach was you got to convince people that they're, they're a sinner, that they are facing God's judgment. They have to see the reality of it. And the way you make it personal is you bring the Ten Commandments. And you ask them things like, well... How, if, you, if you die tonight and you appear before heaven, what do you think God will say? And they'll say, well, I think God will let me in. Why? Because I'm a good person. Okay, you think you're a good person? Well, let's see, according to the Bible, whether you're a good person or not. The Ten Commandments, a good way to measure whether you're a good person or not. Have you kept the Ten Commandments? Most people will be like, uh, what are they again? So Ray Comfort will say, well, one of them is, you shall not lie. Have you ever told a lie? Don't lie to me. <laughs> And people will say, oh, of course I told a lie. Hasn't everyone? I was like, well, I'm talking about everyone. We're just talking about you. If you told a lie, what does that make you? A liar. That's right. You're a liar. <laughs> Have you ever stolen something? You know, uh, I, I don't think so. Well, come on. You just told me you're a liar. You expect me to believe that? Have you ever <laughs> stolen anything? Even a small thing? They're like, well, I don't know. Maybe a pencil case when I was little. All right. That makes you what? A stealer. No, a thief. Know your vocabulary. You're a thief. And then, and then he asked them, well, have you ever committed adultery in your heart? Have you ever committed adultery? And they would say, well, what's that? Well, Jesus said, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever done that? And most men will say, yeah, of course I have. Well, you just told me by your own admission, we've only looked at three of the Ten Commandments, and you're a lying, thieving adulterer. And you have to appear before the judgment seat of God. How do you think you're due? And most people say, oh, I don't know. I don't, if I get judged by that standard, I guess I'm not doing too well. Well, that's right. That's what the Bible says. You get judged by the standards of God's holiness, which are reflected in his law. You are going to be found guilty. And if you're found guilty, what do you think God will do? Send you to heaven or to hell? Uh, I guess hell. That's right. Hell is a real place. It's a place of judgment where the fire does not die. Torment does not end. I don't want to see you go to hell. Do you know that God has provided a way for you to escape the fires of hell? For you to be forgiven of all your sin. All the times you've broken the law of God. He's provided that way as a free gift by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And then you start to explain the gospel. Okay. And uh, in a very Christianized American culture where people all believe basically God loves me. God is love and God loves me. God will never send me to hell because God is love. 
and they have this very warped theology of what Christian, Christian gospel says, you need to bring the law. You need to tell people, hey, sin is real and repentance is required before you can commit to Jesus. Repentance is an aspect of committing to Jesus. You cannot hold on to your old mindsets and sins while at the same time bowing before the Lordship of Christ. And so when I, when I discovered this approach, it was very enlightening. I thought, this is the answer. And I started to promote it like crazy. In fact, I discovered it right when I was finishing my staff training. And I was this close to being kicked off of staff training. My director was telling me I was being rebellious. Because I went out to evangelize at Irvine. And instead of using the four spiritual laws, I used the Ten Commandments, the laws of God. And forget these spiritual laws. Let me start with the laws of God. And one of the staff, uh, LA staff, he was like a spy. He was spying on me. <laughs> and so I thought nobody was around. And he heard, overheard the whole thing. And so he reports it to the director, a little, you know, a little snitch, right? Uh, <laughs> and then the director brings me in and says, I'm this close to sending you home. Give me a reason why I shouldn't. I heard that you're not submitting to our training. How, do you, how can you judge the four spiritual laws unless you've used it? I was like, well, I have used it a lot. I use it everywhere. And I, I have some very basic questions that are not being answered by the staff. And so I feel like there's something that Ray Comfort's offering that I think we should, I think it's going to radically transform Campus Crusade for Christ. And he said, all right, I'm going to send you home. And in that moment, I heard the Lord say, Submit. And I said, Lord, I can't do that. I, for me to have a clear conscience, I've discovered the truth. I cannot go back. And the Lord said, I don't care. Submit. I'm writing a very specific purpose and narrative for your life. And you're not going to wreck it by being overzealous. Because even what looks like the full truth to you right now is not the full truth. Submit. You will learn under various men. And you're going to learn how to honor all of them. But at the same time, not replicate their mistakes. Submit. And so uh, I was ready to just go ahead and pack my bags. And I, I went to the director and I said, I'm really sorry. From now on, I will use the four spiritual laws. I will be in full submission. If I do anything that's out of order, please confront me. I'll be ready, willing to change. I am very sorry. And the director said, all right. I don't know if I believe you. But for now, we'll keep you around. And so I finished my training there. But that whole time was burning inside me. Way of the master is the truth. And so when I got to Korea here in 2005, I actually had a way of the master training class with DVDs and everything. It was like a two-month training class. And at the end of the class, we all went out to the streets of Itaewon and we, we used the Ten Commandments. And there were about like 35 people or 30 people that took the class and 30 people tr uh, completed the class. My, my roommate, James, was one of them. Both of my roommates, actually. I convinced both of them to join the training. And uh, we went out and we used it. And let me tell you, there's a lot of good things in it. But I'll, I'll get to why. Uh, what are some of the questions I have about Way of the Master? Now, after Way of the Master, there came a season where I started to discover online YouTube videos of a guy named Todd White. Todd White is a street evangelist, full of the love of God and highly anointed. And gifted in spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of healing, different healing gifts, 
and the gift of the word of knowledge and prophecy. Very sharp gift. And so there are videos of him online, and he's in Boston, you know, very hostile culture. He'll go up to very well-educated Bostonians, and he will say, do you believe in God? And all this start up a spiritual conversation, and, and then these guys will be like, God, who's God? You know, what's God? You know, we just make our own truth, you know? If it's true to me, if, if, I, if it works for me, then it's true to me. And, and, uh, and then he'll be like, um, so uh, why don't you tell me about your eye? And the guy will be like, what are you talking about? My eye. Like, yeah, tell me about your eye. I just feel like God's saying something, something, something up with your eye. And I like, oh, well, when I was a kid, we were playing with BB guns, and my cousin shot me in the eye. And so I'm 20%, 80% blind in my right eye. And Tom White would say, uh, no, actually, he didn't even say right eye. He was just, I'm 80% blind in one of my eyes. And Tom White would actually, he'll, he'll be like, all right, can, can we pray for that right now? God, will, Jesus will touch that. Jesus wants to touch and heal that right now. And the guy would be like, oh, okay. <laughs> and Tom White would be like, he would be like, all right, I'm going to pray for your left eye or something like that, right? And the guy would be like, how would you know it was my left eye? He said, God told me, shut up. All right, just keep praying. <laughs> and Tom White would pray, and then the guy would say, wow, it's actually better. Was it 100%? No, it's like, like halfway better. This is pretty cool. He said, well, we're going to pray again. We're going to get 100% better. He prays again. Oh, my goodness. I can see clearly in my eye now. Right? And then Todd White will then share the gospel. I mean, how can you argue with that, right? So powerful. And so I was like, this is the answer. Some people call this power evangelism. Some people call it prophetic evangelism. It's kind of a mixture of both because you need the power to heal and you need the prophetic side to be able to know which eye to pray for. <laughs> anyway, prophetic power evangelism. I had this season where I just went all out for that. And that's when you guys met me as the lead pastor of New Philly. And so when we would go out on the streets, it was all about use power evangelism, pray for people, offer to pray for people. That is the main thing you are to do is to pray for people and see them healed. And to prophesy if you get words of knowledge. Now, the cool thing is, you know, the whole church, New Philly Leadership, I used to require it as part of new leaders training. And we used to go out on the streets and we would get some pretty cool stories. But here's the thing. Here's what I've observed as the lead pastor is about 15% of the people will come back and have these amazing stories. Pastor Marcus. Yeah, I got these words of knowledge for her. And I was like, you're from Jamaica and you, you're, you're, you have a broken family. And then and the girl started crying. I was like, wow. And then Pastor Aaron will come back and, and she'll say, yeah, you know, I just said, you know, you have like, uh, I was praying for them and I just kind of got that they have self-image and self-esteem issues. So I just kind of called that out and then the girls started crying. And then we pray for their knee and then their knee got healed. We pray for uneven legs and then one leg grew out. And there were like certain people like Lisa Kim, you know, Diana Suck. They were making legs grow out left and right. They would come back and we made five legs grow out. But the experience for the other 85%, which included myself, would be, hey, sir, uh, uh, you have a few minutes? Oh, okay, sure, what's up? You know, do you speak English? Yeah, 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 I'm foreign too. Okay, all right. Hey, you know, we're out here, we're just sharing about the love of God, you know, talking to people about God. Have you ever, what's your religious background? I don't really have one. I grew up Catholic and I didn't like it, and so I just walked away from church. All right, well, um, okay, uh, that's cool. Um, but is there anything wrong with your body? <laughs> Like, we would, just, we would just go reckless in. And then the guy would go, well, why are you asking? What a strange question. Well, we, you know, we believe Jesus heals. And, you know, our church, we see healing from time to time. And we're going to pray for you. And, all right, fine. I've got a shoulder injury. I have some rotator cuffs injured. Uh, we want to pray for it. All right, fine. 
Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would touch his rotator cuff, heal it in Jesus' name. Test it out. Test it out. Come on. And the guy will be like, it feels exactly the same. <laughs> All right. You know, we got to pray again. We got to pray again. Hey, y'all. Hey, y'all. Lay hands. Everybody together. Lay hands. Uh, pray hand, heal in Jesus' name. Uh, hey, man. Uh, how long are you going to do this for? <laughs> You're not healed? Are you sure? So the 85% of the people will come back with no story at all. Why? Because we don't have spiritual gifts that are regularly manifesting like some people in the house. Some people have a gift of healing that's resident, and so they see regular healing. Some people have a prophetic gift that regularly occurs. But for the rest of us, which happened just maybe one out of the ten times we go out, we come back with all these stories that didn't make sense at all to people. Like, we provided experiences for people on the street where it just made them feel like, um, you're trying to prove to me God is real by praying for my healing, but my healing didn't take place, so does that mean I should conclude that God is not real? We're giving them actually bad experiences. So, I shut it down. And I, and I, and I sought the face of the Lord. Now, uh, one thing you need to take note of is all four approaches, open air, four spiritual laws, way of the master, power evangelism. All four approaches tend to be very decision-oriented. It's very do or die. And in one sense, evangelism should have an element of urgency. It concerns eternity. And who knows, you may die tonight. In fact, Dr. James D. Kennedy, during the evangelism explosion years, when he would try to mobilize a lot of churches to evangelize out on the street, he used the key question. He trained everybody to ask the key question. If you die tonight, what would happen to you? Now, there's a real risk that you could die tonight. But for most people you meet on the streets who get that question, they're not going to embrace that hypothesis because their life right now is not, it's free of any kind of life-threatening crisis. So even though you might hypothetically say it, they're not going to embrace and really think through the ramification implications of that. So you're not really moving their mind or their heart. All four approaches are not only decision-oriented, they're very event-oriented. Evangelism is something you do. You know, on evangelism day, you know, on the evangelism outreach event, we all go out. During Big Break Conference at Panama City Beach, we go out evangelizing. That is something we do. It's an event we check off. But for the rest of our Christian life, we, don't, we fail to integrate. How can we share the gospel in every and any context outside of these events? All four approaches are also very production-oriented. It's about get as many decisions for Christ as possible. That's what brings glory to God. Is a lot of numbers. A lot of people getting saved. And there was a glaring neglect of how to integrate new believers into church communities so that they can mature. There were follow-up efforts made, even by Billy Graham Crusade, all these uh, famous evangelists, Campus Crusade. You know, they would do follow-up efforts, but the follow-up efforts for me, when I observed it, was very, very not well thought out and not committed to, very short-lived. And I noticed that it was very production-oriented. We don't think about that. Let's not talk about how these new believers that just received Christ are failing to get integrated in the community. Let's not talk about that. Let's just focus and rejoice 
that all these people have gotten saved. Very production-oriented. Now, I'd like to comment on each bef- uh, before I teach you the wisdom that I want to teach you today. Okay? Open-air preaching. I, I kind of mentioned it earlier. Open-air preaching has its place. It's a rich tradition. Not everybody may be called to it, but for a season, God may even call you to participate in it. And if he does, open up those opportunities. Make sure the open-air preaching is being done well. That you're not going out there blasting people, telling people they're all going to hell. Unless God specifically gives you that ministry. Now, some Old Testament prophets were given that very difficult, <laughs> very difficult task of telling people they're all going to face God's judgment. Most of the Old Testament prophets had that task. So you cannot say that God does not do that. There is precedence for God doing that. In fact, he will do that before he gives a final judgment for a city. He may even bring certain evangelists to go in there and actually prophesy judgment and repentance as one last-ditch effort to see if the people in that city will turn. And if they don't, then God brings the judgment. Uh, Open-air preaching can involve that, but if it doesn't involve just the hell and judgment, so what I'm telling you is don't judge everybody out there. Now, some of them are doing it out of just overly, over, being overly zealous. They could care less if people could turn to Christ or not. They're just out there checking off their to-do list. And uh, that kind of open-air preaching, I have no care for. I think that actually hurts the evangelism efforts of the church. So if you get involved in open-air preaching, make sure it's balanced. That you're, you're, the preacher is actually preaching the whole counsel of God. Second, four spiritual laws. Four spiritual laws at one point in American church history was highly effective. Highly effective. It brought hundreds and thousands of college students to Christ. Back in the 50s, it started at UCLA. And Dr. Bill Bright created the four spiritual laws. And he, and he saw the need to evangelize. But college students, a lot of times, uh, they, they would say, I don't know how to evangelize. So Dr. Bill Bright just kind of summed it up in this little booklet and then gave it to students and said, if you don't know how to evangelize, you can at least know how to read a booklet. And so they train people not to evangelize. They train people how to read a booklet, which was a form of evangelism. But in the 50s and 60s, it was highly effective. Why? Because most college students that went to college all over the states were from the Bible Belt. Many of them came from cultures where it was normal to go to a Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian church, Episcopal church. Lutheran church. And so many of them already had basic Bible knowledge when somebody would read this booklet to them. So it was very comprehensible. They understood it. And then when they realized they had to make a personal decision that they didn't become a Christian just by attending church and by being born into a Christian family, but they had to make a personal decision. Many of them made the personal decision. It was also highly affected in Korea because Korea, in a very similar fashion at that time, was actually quite a Christianized nation. The Pyongyang revival has spread Christianity through much of the middle Pyongyang to Seoul region. It's very heavily populated with lots of churches. And so when college students heard the presentation from very heartfelt staff and student leaders, they will receive Christ. Now, that was then, but this is now. Today we have a post-Christendom, post-modern culture that we live in. You go onto the college campus of Columbia University and you will not find a college student that has a Christian background. Many times you will find a college student who is Muslim, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, hostile 
toward Christianity and thinks very lowly and condescendingly of Christianity. When you try to read a booklet with a Columbia University student, they will find it insulting. I should know. I kept doing it. I kept doing it thinking that I could find some kind of different result. Maybe I'll find that one Columbia student that will receive Christ. But I went out faithfully and did not find a single Columbia student. So, you know, sometimes I would switch over to the Ten Commandments. And I'll do the Ten Commandments. But even the Ten Commandments, some of these Columbia students, they did not have a basic Bible knowledge. And so even me mentioning Ten Commandments wasn't that meaningful to them. Four spiritual laws... It was very effective because it immediately and conveniently trained every single person to evangelize. But it did not train them to evangelize in various contexts. The way of the master. I honor Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron as well. For their courage to stand up and confront our modern production-oriented, marketing-oriented evangelism methods. It is appalling. There is emotional manipulation a lot of times involved in getting people to respond to the gospel. I personally, I am not down with that. I will never utilize that. I've never utilized that here at New Philly. Because I I don't think emotional manipulation will produce a good disciple of Christ. They're eventually going to discover I got manipulated. And they're going to be disillusioned later on. Uh, Sometimes the gospel in the church is marketed in ways that loses its integrity. The gospel message is integrity. And in this sense, we must use the law, the Ten Commandments. And the training that Ray Comfort provides was needed and very useful. But this is what I found with Ray Comfort's approach. Uh, His approach is very static, very formulated. Very scripted. It's pretty much a different version of the four spiritual laws. Except you didn't have a booklet with you. You just memorized it. And they will make you watch video after video after video. And then practice after practice after practice. But you're practicing the same presentation. Have you ever told a lie? You're a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? You're not a stealer. You're a thief. Have you ever committed adultery? You're an adulterer. Have you ever hated someone in your heart? Jesus said you're a murderer. By your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adultering murderer. You think you're going to get into heaven. And it was very scripted. And what I found was, in, I actually led like my cousin to Christ. I led my best friend to Christ. Don't get me wrong. It worked in certain settings. But I also, there were a lot of, a lot of uh, questions that I had as I continued to use it. And I realized that I didn't feel like I was really engaging people. When I would use the way of the master approach. I felt more like I had to finish my presentation. Rather than. Let me meet you where you're at. Power prophetic evangelism. I honor this approach as well. Especially if you are Todd White. And you're gifted like Todd White. And it works well for people who. Manifest spiritual gifts regularly. But without. The manifestation of spiritual gifts. This approach can result in flat conversations and very awkward moments. Uh, My shoulder feels the same. Oh, no. I promise God is real. Let's try again. 
You know, one time, I think I prayed for a guy like five times. The guy let me pray for him five times. And then the guy finally said, all right, you want to quit? It resulted in these kinds of flat and awkward moments. And sometimes it can actually unnecessarily alienate people, especially the unchurched. Because it may make them feel like you're out there to prove to yourself that God's power is real, rather than really caring for them of where they're at with the gospel. And if nothing happens, you just move on. And you don't really meet them where they're at either. So I found that in these four approaches, I've learned things, that I, things that I can honor. But it has also put attention in my heart to seek out what is a balanced, biblical, effective, engaging approach toward evangelism not just for full-time ministers, but for the whole house, for the whole church. And uh, I was going to read out of John chapter 4. Actually, I want you to turn to John chapter 4. Let me breeze through John chapter 4. I'm not going to be able to unpack it because we're running into time constraints. But look with me to John chapter 4. This is the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman by the well. Very famous story. If you don't know it, please make make sure to take time to read it at home. But I'm going to summarize it for you here. Uh, From verses 16 to 19, uh, let me read it here, okay? From verses 4 through 15, I'll summarize it. Jesus simply meets this woman at the well at noon. That's the hottest point of the day. Most of the women of that town did not come out to draw water at noon. So she knew that nobody would come out to draw water. She was an outcast, a social outcast. She was a town, uh, a town promiscuous girl. <laughs> and so she didn't want to be seen. And so she goes out to draw water at noon, and Jesus approaches her and says, Give me a drink. And the lady says, Um... How can you talk to me? Aren't you like a Jew? I'm a Samaritan. Now, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Jews looked down on Samaritans. Samaritans were the marginalized, mixed-race people that the Jews uh, saw as sellouts. People who had mixed the worship of Yahweh with the worship of the pagan idols of that land. And so the Samaritans were rejects. And so she was asking Jesus, how can you ask me? You're a Jew. You're a man. How can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus starts asking, saying, well, if you knew the gift of God, you would ask me and I will give you water. I'll give you living water. And the, and the lady thinks he's talking about real water. Now, I want you to look at verse 16. They're talking about water. The woman says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not even your husband. What you have said is true. This is called manifesting the spiritual gift called the word of knowledge. This is a supernatural knowledge that Jesus gained. Not by looking through her wallet. Not by judging the appearance of her clothes but by getting a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit about her life. And so Jesus, 
he uses power and prophetic evangelism, doesn't he? But that's not what I want us to focus on because we, we, you know, we, we do do that now and then. Uh, and by the way, if you don't have a spiritual gift manifesting, don't try to take a guess. <laughs> if, you, if you are the type that you're still testing it out, test it out on fellow brothers and sisters, not upon some stranger you meet on the street. Okay, because if you guess um, you have four husbands and the man you're with now is not even your husband, all right, you might get a slap in the face. If you're wrong, you are going to get slapped. You know, here the lady said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know, if you prophesy wrong, person will say, sir, I perceive that you are an idiot and walk away from you. So if you don't have, if you know the spiritual gift the word of knowledge is not actually manifesting all right practice within the church first before you hit the streets with this um but look at verse 20 the woman said to him verse 19 sir i perceive that you are a prophet look at verse 20 our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say that in jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem will you worship the father stop I want everyone to take note here that the woman changes the topic. Did you guys catch that? We're talking about your husbands and the guy you're now with who is not your husband. We're talking about that. And then the lady changed the subject. And the amazing thing is that Jesus let her. Jesus didn't say mountain of worship. Let's talk about this man you're cohabitating with. Let's talk about that. He didn't go back. He let her change the subject. And the thing we got to note here is Jesus lets her go off on this tangent so that she can protect some of her dignity. Well, that's the essence of the gospel. It, It actually protects people's dignity. Even if that dignity is not found in the right place. The gospel is not about just exposing you and stripping you down and embarrassing you. It involves protecting people's dignity. So don't insist on pounding the same topic if the person is uncomfortable. There may be a reason for it. Evangelism is not effective when you carelessly tear down someone's dignity because you're too preoccupied with converting them. The heart of the gospel is not about embarrassing or exposing someone. The gospel is not about making someone feel bad or worthless about themselves. It's about helping them find their sense of worth in Christ. It doesn't have to look methodically the same way each time. And then in verse 25 and 26, Jesus ends this evangelism, uh, evangelism experience. He ends it by just pointing to the revelation of who he is. He doesn't try to unpack everything. He doesn't try to get her to raise her hand. If, if, if you would like to now receive me into your life by prayer, I want you to raise your hand. I see, you, I see that hand. All right. I will lead you in a model prayer. Just repeat after me. He didn't do that. He just simply pointed her to the fact that he is the Messiah, which in Hebrew means the anointed one. Mashiach. The Mashiach will tell us the truth. And Jesus said, the one who speaks to you. I am he. So he points her to a revelation of who he is. 
And then he lets her unpack the rest. The unsaid aspects of the gospel. She discovers it for herself. Now, this is what I want us to focus on. Is verse 27 through 35. Now, uh, I can't read that all. So I'll start from verse 31. Okay, look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to him, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say they are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I'll tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. One sows and another reaps. What, what, what Jesus is revealing here is that evangelism is not just production-oriented, event-oriented, decision-oriented. Evangelism is oftentimes very process-oriented. He's telling the disciples here, look, you're about to see this entire town put their faith in me. But it's not because of your labor, it's because of other people who've gone before you. Other unnamed prophets who came before you, other unnamed faithful preachers that came into the they sold in the love of God, the message of God, and now they're ready for harvest. One sows, another reaps. There's a process. And right now, we're entering into this town toward the latter part of the process, and you're going to see a lot of people come into Christ. And what happens, if you look in verse 39 through and 41, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And verse 41, And many more believed because of his word. So many people believed just simply on the woman's testimony, and then many more people came out to hear Jesus directly, and many more believed because they heard Jesus directly. So, so multitudes of Samaritans, this reject town, believes in the truth of who Jesus is. This is powerful. There is a deep revelation about evangelism here. The sowing and reaping principle. And now the main, re- the main wisdom that I want you to get out of this verse is that evangelism is not decision-oriented, event-oriented, or production-oriented. But we have to start seeing evangelism as process-oriented. We got to be patient and get people through a process because normally, especially in a postmodern, post-Christendom culture, people are in a process of coming to Christ. Everyone say process-oriented. You know, as Christians, we believe there are two kinds of people, Christians and non-Christians. You're either Christian or you're not. You're either united by faith to Christ or you're not. However, Tim Keller points out in his book, Center Church, he says, we must also acknowledge that coming to this point of uniting to Christ by faith often works as a process, not only as an event. 
So becoming a, follow, a committed follower of Christ can occur through a very dramatic conversion. You come to New Philly, you've never been, stepped foot in a church ever before, but you come to New Philly and during the praise time, you just start crying. You go to Emmaus meeting, you just start crying. And then you tell the uh, Emmaus staff and, and, and our church pastors, and you're like, I don't know why I was crying, but I felt so much peace and love. And then the Emmaus staff shares the gospel and you receive Christ right there. Very dramatic. There are dramatic conversions. But for a lot of other people, coming to Christ often takes place, not through just this one major decision I made on May 14, 2014, but rather through a series of small decisions or thoughts that bring a person closer and closer to the point where they eventually put their faith fully in Christ. It's not just about You've now heard the gospel. Repent. Make a decision for Christ. Forty years ago, that worked really well. But right now, there are all kinds of religious beliefs that are out there. All kinds of relativist, postmodern, post-Christendom beliefs. You tell them make a decision, they don't even know what decision you're talking about. You ask them, are you saved? They're like, what does that mean? Have you, ever noticed, have you ever thought to an unchurched person, if you ask them, are you saved? Do you know Jesus? Do you have salvation? All that is gibberish to them. They're like, well, who is your God? What is he like? What does it mean? What does it look like to be a Christian? They have all these different mental hangups, and you're not addressing any of that. You're just asking, are you saved? Saved from what? We have to stop thinking of just decision now and start thinking. Small decisions. It's okay. Let me just help you along. Let me show you that Christians are normal. (laughs) That we are actually cool. We can actually put together dance presentations that have swagger. The members of our church, they are leaders in their businesses. They make wonderful art. They even show up to comedy clubs on open mic nights and get up and grab the mic and make the whole room laugh. And his name is Pastor Caleb. (laughs) In a post-Christendom culture that we now live in, this is the norm and not the exception. People don't have the necessary biblical background To hear a gospel presentation via a booklet or some other method and then immediately understand who God is, what sin is, who Jesus is, and what repentance and faith are in a way that enables them to make a meaningful, intelligent commitment. They just don't have all of that in their minds. They may have all these mental hang-ups and questions that makes the gospel the last thing that they will want to commit to. So what many people, the unchurched need... What they need is a process, an engaging, intelligent, loving, welcoming process that I think is wonderfully precipitated by a Christian community. We want to welcome them into a Christian community long enough for them to hear multiple presentations of the gospel, multiple manifestations of the gospel being lived out, where their objections get slowly addressed through a process. And as they see Christians, they can imagine themselves as a Christian 
And then they decide if this is something that they really want. We've got to help people through the process. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, uh, identifies the process in six steps. And I want to mention it because it's very insightful. Uh, awareness, relevance, credibility, trial, commitment, reinforcement. Six steps. I'm going to explain real, real quick. Awareness. Awareness simply says, ah, I see it. Uh, my friend, she's devout, but she's not a stiff. She's not austere. She's surprisingly cool. Uh, these devout Christians are not just, they're not robotic, mindless believers. They actually think intel intelligibly. Uh, I like a lot of the things that are being presented from the Bible. Okay? So awareness, number one, is just I see it. Number two, relevance. I need it. What these Christians have, I think I need it for my life. There must be good benefits to being a Christian. Because my friend is just really happy all the time. Even, even through difficulties in their life. They're handling it very well. Uh, I heard the testimony about anxiety. That person was really over, able to overcome anxiety. I'm dealing with anxiety as well. Maybe what God has done for them, God will do for me. I need it. Number three is credibility. I need it because I'm beginning to see that it's true. And this is where people start to think, uh, I, I'm starting to see that the Bible is actually historically accurate. That actually has a lot of great support and evidence going for it. Uh, science can't really prove everything, and it can't disprove the supernatural. Man, I've got to deal with this. Maybe the Bible, what the Bible is presenting is actually a good presentation of truth. Or I see now why Jesus had to die. He is indeed the only way. So that's credibility. Fourth is trial. I see what it would be like to be a Christian. Uh, this is very important where you, you want to get the unchurched. You want them involved in some kind of community group. Or even get them involved in the service team. Welcoming team. Even though they're not a Christian. You know they're not a Christian. Just let them get involved. Because even non-unchurched, non-Christians, they still want to serve, by the way. They might want to help people, but that might be actually a wonderful way for them to try Christianity out. To be in this trial where they are thinking, man, Christianity, I think I really dig it. I really vibe with this. And people in this process will even find themselves defending Christianity, even though they're not fully committed to it. You may find unchurched friends that do that from time to time. Number five is commitment. That's where the person says, I take it. This may be the point of genuine conversion, or they may find that it has already happened somewhere along the process. But this is where the person says, I'm all in. I'm, I take it. I, it's my own personal decision. And the many decisions will sound like, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Uh, though there are a lot of costs to following Jesus, I'm going to do it. You know, I want to live fully for God, and I want to I know about the plans that he has for my life. This is the fifth step of the process, commitment. And then six is reinforcement. This is where a person says, ah, now I get it. And this is where uh, the gospel becomes more relevant and more clear and more real to the person. Six steps of this process. It shows that, especially in our postmodern, post-Christendom world, evangelism needs to begin to be seen as a process. 
It's not just do or die. Do or die approach is just, it just doesn't require any patience. We need to understand that people are in a process and we want to intelligibly engage them, lovingly engage them. You know, there are some practical tips to this. You know, uh, we got to stop seeing evangelism like a slot machine. You know, <laughs> let me put in my coin of, of gospel. Let me put in my coin of four spiritual laws and hopefully I win the jackpot. We got to stop seeing it as a slot machine and start seeing it like farming. I'm a soul over here. I'm a soul. I'm a scatter a lot over here, over there. And I know they may not become Christian right away. But in three years, they may. And then you might meet people who other people have already sown into them. And when you find them at that place where they're just ripe for the picking, you get the joy of reaping them. But you don't let that experience misinterpret you into thinking that's going to be the case everywhere. You know, sometimes people take the Bible verse, the harvest uh, is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for the harvest field. Sometimes they take that verse to mean that the harvest is ready Everywhere, anywhere, at all times, always. But that's just not true. Jesus was saying that was true of that time and moment. And he was saying that that was true of the Samaritan town. But Jesus also went into towns where they weren't ripe for harvest. And they rejected him and they spat on him. And they were still in a process. Nicodemus, great example, process-oriented evangelism. Jesus teaches him and uses all these great analogies. But Jesus doesn't say, Nicodemus, where are you going? Nicodemus is like, what? You did not receive me yet. You did not make a commitment to me yet. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus just let him go. And Nicodemus, later on, he began to find the revelation being unpacked that Jesus is indeed Lord. Just think about the entire 12 apostles. They were in a process. Let me ask you, when did the apostles get converted? When did Peter, James, John, when did they get converted? When? Show me. You can't point it out. You can't point it out. Why? Because it was a process. In fact, if you really really wanted to be technical, I think they really got converted only after Jesus resurrected and appeared to them. And then they start to worship Jesus in a new way. And they start to really give of their hearts. And they committed to stay in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. I think it was only after the resurrection that they truly got converted. When the Holy Spirit came and indwelled them from that point on. Because the Bible actually says in the Gospels that during the ministry of Jesus, the Holy Spirit had yet to come upon believers. They were not, the Holy Spirit was not indwelling the believers yet. That was to come after Jesus was glorified. It says that in the Gospel of John. We got to see evangelism like farming. Uh, now, uh, here's some, some tips. I'm going to close with this. Uh, when, we evan- when we relate to the unchurched, here's some wisdom. Avoid religious jargon and Christian lingo. Talk to them in a way that they can comprehend. Uh, you know, there's a lot of churches that are seeker-sensitive churches. Where they cater the entire program to people who are unchurched and seekers. New Philly, we do not do that. I'm not judging it. 
I'm not criticizing it, but that is the decision that our core leaders have made. We're not going to be a secret-sensitive church. We, we're willing to be secret-sensitive, but we also want to be spirit-sensitive. And sometimes being spirit-sensitive can be actually spirit in, uh, secret-insensitive. You ever notice that? You know, if people came to our retreat, you know, unchurched people came to our retreat, they would be freaked out. If unchurched people come to our Sunday service on certain Sundays, they're going to get freaked out. But it doesn't mean that what we're doing is bad. Because we're being sensitive to how the Holy Spirit's moving. And sometimes when the Holy Spirit moves, it's going to be secret insensitive. But I like how Tim Keller talks about this. He says maybe the answer answer is not to be seeker sensitive. But the least we can do as Christians is be seeker comprehensible. We don't have to cater the whole church program and our services to the seeker. But when we do share and when we do talk to them after the service, the least we can do is be comprehensible to them. You know, I was reading about Ruth and Esther the other day and, you know, Deborah and all, all these Bible, dropping all these Bible names and the person has never been to church before. Who's Ruth? Is that your cousin? <laughs> we got to be secret comprehensible. We got to be understood by the people that we're trying to evangelize to. That means avoiding religious jargon. Uh, don't try to get a decision right away. You know, don't feel like, do or die. I may never see you. you. Might get hit by cars. You walk out. Yeah, maybe they will, but, but most likely they won't. You're gonna see them again. You're gonna see them at your workplace. You're gonna see them at your school. You're gonna see them in your Korean language course. Just think of it long term. How can I sow into them along that process? How can I get them along the process? There's a lot of tips here, but I'm going to leave them unsaid. Uh, I, will, I will encourage you to discover it in your community group. I will design the discussion questions in a way where you can discover some of these unsaid things, but I'm not sure if you're going to unpack everything. But this is, uh, I need to end here because I'm getting quite long. Uh, let me close us in prayer.